0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martini's coming up.
1: So glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, good, and crazy martinis for you today. And we're brought to you by Plexiderm. Try plexiderm.com to learn much more and order it at a steep discount, courtesy of us here at the Three Martini Lunch. Much more about the product in just a moment. Uh, Jim, obviously our big story is the fact that we got the Iranian retaliation on Tuesday evening, roughly about the same time, ironically, that Soleimani was taken out at the Baghdad airport. On Thursday of last week, Friday, local time there, Uh, so we found out that uh, it was about a dozen to 15 uh, missiles from Iran to a couple of different uh, air bases in Iraq where U.S. troops are housed. In the end, no U.S. casualties, no Iraqi casualties. Uh, Basically a lot of loud noise. Uh, Iran claiming that 80 American service members were killed. The Pentagon saying all of our service members are just fine. Leading to uh, John Roberts, the White House correspondent over at Fox, to sum it up pretty well in his tweet. Iran's claim to have killed dozens of U.S. troops would seem to indicate that last night's missile attacks were a massive propaganda firework show. But uh, in the end, with uh, no damage done to American personnel, it gave President Trump the opportunity to come out today, uh, say that Iran is effectively standing down, once again reminding us that uh, taking out Soleimani was the right thing to do. And then he offered this. To the people and leaders of Iran, we
0: want you to have a future and a great future, one that you deserve one of prosperity at home and harmony with the nations of the world. The United States is ready to embrace peace
1: with all who seek it. He also said that more sanctions are on the way, so uh, still tightening the screws here. Uh, Ultimately, Jim, uh, could have been a lot worse, obviously, last night. So what do we make of the outcome here?
0: Yeah, considering how scary things seemed, probably around 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock last night, Uh, The first reports of Iran firing rockets or missiles at uh, Iraqi bases that had U.S. servicemen there. Uh, Reports that the Iranian Air Force had been mobilized. Uh, We didn't know whether that was over standard air defense or whether they were going to try to bomb some targets. Uh, It was very scary. It was it really sounded ominous. And then hour by hour, as more information trickled in, it became clear that this was, from the American perspective, probably close to the best case scenario. Um, now we should point out, this is, the, uh, this is the overt response from Iran. This is the fast response from Iran. You look at the history of this regime, they really do like to use terrorist proxies to target uh, diplomats and civilian targets, sometimes very far from the Middle East. So the possibility of Iran responding in some other way is certainly not uh, an impossibility right now. But it would appear that their overt and military response of firing these missiles was a almost entirely symbolic gesture. Uh, according to the Iraqis, they fired about 22 missiles. If you and we know that the Iraq Iranians, first of all, they could have fired more and they probably could have fired um, at other U.S. bases or other locations. You could fire them straight into the middle of Baghdad or Basra or someplace. Um, they could have done a lot more damage if they'd wanted to. They chose not to. I think this is the I think a lot of people are saying this is the Iranians sending a signal. Um, if the, the Iranians had done something like, you know, God forbid, blown up a truck bomb outside a U.S. embassy somewhere in the region, we all know that the U.S. would then say, all right, it's on and we're going to respond to some other form of military force. And there are all kinds of possibilities. And that would probably spiral into a much bigger direct war between the United States and Iran. With this, we didn't really need to respond. As you mentioned, none of our guys were killed. None of the Iraqi guys were killed. Um, a lot of noise, a lot of you know, fire in the sky and all that stuff. But in the end, not much damage was done. Advance warning was given to the Iraqi government. Our guys had plenty of time to get into the air raid shelters. Things turned out okay. Um, and you think about where we were last night, this is probably about as good as you could get. And it looks like President Trump and the administration have kind of, you know, interpreted the signal correctly. okay. You guys don't want to escalate. We're not going to escalate either. We're, we're dangling a possibility. Right? You want to reopen negotiations, we can do it. Um, we want you know we want to reach a point where you guys, we are not at such a hostile point. Uh, it presumably would require the Iranians to give up their nuclear weapons program. And I don't think that's uh, something they're likely to do. And it's worth noting that the Iranian people, by and large, believe they should have a nuclear weapons program as well. That having been said, they're being squeezed by sanctions. And so The worst-case scenario, thankfully, appears to be off the table. And maybe there's just a glimmer of a possibility of reopening negotiations and getting towards some sort of uh, less hostile state between the United States and Iran.
1: Two follow-up issues here, Jim. Uh, It's kind of buried, given the significance of the the U.S.-Iran posture right now. But uh, the Ukrainian airliner that went down in Iran last night, as far as we know, there's nothing official that it was shot down. Obviously, uh, the Ukrainian leaders are saying that uh, all things are on the table. They're even looking into whether a rocket brought it down. Coincidence? Uh, what, what questions do we need to be asking at this point?
0: Yeah, I mean, late last night there was some video floating around Twitter purportedly showing the crash, and it looked like the uh, uh, the plane was on fire well before it went down. Um, a lot of people are going to say, oh, come on, there's just no way this could be a coincidence. This has to be somehow connected to the conflict I would remind people, November 12th, 2001, I will forever remember that day because I was about two days into my honeymoon. I'd gotten married two days earlier. Uh, A flight, uh, major jetliner crashed just outside JFK Airport in New York City. This was two months after 9-11. The military operations to topple the Taliban were ongoing, and everybody's first instinct was, oh, my God, al-Qaeda hit us again. Turns out it was a, a pilot error and, and mechanical issue. Um, sometimes you have plane crashes in times and places where everybody would think, oh, my God, this has to be deliberate, you know, uh, deliberate action. Um, so it's possible this is just a, a plane crash. The scenario that I've, you've seen a lot of you know people discussing uh, that would appear to kind of make sense is you figure since the killing of Soleimani, Iranian air defense has probably been on highest alert. They know they're launching their rockets. They don't know exactly how we're going to respond. They figure there's a possibility of the United States flying our fighters over there and trying to bomb some targets in Iran. Um, these, you know, we don't know how well-trained the Iranian air defense groups are. We don't, They're probably tired. They're probably stressed. They've probably been under high operations tempo. They're probably wondering if uh, if war is imminent. You know, it's not hard to imagine a scenario where somebody, just human error, fatigue, stress, whatever you want to call it, ends up mistaking an airliner for some sort of foreign entity in, in their airspace and shoots it down or some sort of heat-seeking missile ends up on the wrong uh, target or something like that. Um, people are going to be speculating about this. Iran so far says they don't want to turn over the black box, which is a uh, indicates we may never get the true story here but um, at this point there's really very little reason to believe that the US would have anything to do with it um, and this is the scenario that seems to make the most sense to me, but uh, you know hopefully we'll learn more someday.
1: Last thing on this, Jim, um haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure it's coming from the likes of MSNBC and CNN and liberal bloggers and so forth. But uh, a couple of points in Trump's comments this morning. One where he said that uh, the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, essentially uh, gave Iran the freedom it felt to really get uh, meddlesome and deadly in countries ranging from Yemen all the way over to Lebanon. And then he also said that the missiles that were fired at uh, in the direction of U.S. troops last night were paid for by the money handed over by the previous administration. I'm guessing that's going to get a little commentary today.
0: Yeah, and that, you know... <laughs> That's one of those things where it may not be literally true. The gist is true, undoubtedly, our loosening of the sanctions and the uh, delivery of the cash on pallets certainly gave the Iranian regime uh, enormous financial resources they did not have when the sanctions were previously in place. Um, The the president's broad argument is true. I was saying this in a a chat with uh, uh, a radio interview earlier today. The only way the Iran deal worked was if in that window of 11 to 15 years that the Iranians were pledging to not work on their nuclear pro- weapons program, which, oh, by the way, Iran had, you know, had been secretly working on a nuclear weapons program all along. So the idea that they were going to honor their word and that absolutely no uh, work on this was going to go on was always pretty implausible. But the only way the Iran deal really worked in the long term is if sometime in that window of 11 to 15 years, the Iranian people had an uprising, toppled their regime, and some sort of friendlier, less hostile, less aggressive regime took its place. Now, could that have happened in that 11 to 15 years? Sure. But if you give that regime a lot of money and if you loosen sanctions and if you let their economy thrive and you let them sell a lot more oil, then the regime is going to be in better shape. Right. So you're undermining the one goal you have that might prevent the Iranian nuclear weapon well down the road. So the, there's a kind of that fundamental logical flaw in the entire Iran deal. Um, so the president, was running, I, I think the president's comments, today were about as good as they get from the president. Uh, There wasn't that much bluster. There were, you know, I think some largely legitimate criticism of the previous administration. Um, But it was, you know, sticking to the facts. It was reassuring. Uh, It made clear the United States does not want to escalate this conflict. We don't want to invade. Uh, We have, you know, we want to see this regime fall, but we're not going to go in and give him the Saddam Hussein treatment. So um, the ball is now back in Iran's court. Uh, We've chosen not to escalate in response to this. They gave us what seemed like a very symbolic response, and now the question is, okay, Iran, your move, how do you want to move forward from this, and we'll see how things shake out.
1: Yeah, it's interesting We're watching Biden especially, but uh, others also talking about how Trump pulling out of the JCPOA was uh, the reason for all the instability in the region. Then Trump pointing out, as we have uh, over the past few years, that uh, the JCPOA did nothing to stabilize the region and probably did uh, make Iran more ambitious, given all the loopholes in the Iran nuclear deal, which is now half done anyway, Jim. It'll be this summer, five years already into the Iran nuclear deal. But now that we're out, the Iranians are out, not really sure there is a deal anymore. But uh, let's talk about something a little happier, and that's keeping New Year's resolutions. If you used to think New Year, new me, eh, maybe more like New Year, new wrinkles. Well, with every passing year, we do look older. But now that's all changed thanks to a little bit of magic in a bottle. It's called Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. Uh, it's like you turn the clock back instead of ringing in another new year. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags, literally in just minutes. It's the easiest New Year's resolution you can ever make. All you have to do is apply the powerful serum to any problem areas, and within 10 minutes, boom, new you. And the best part is, there's no surgery, no Botox, it's all natural. Simply put, you will be blown away by the results. You can ring in 2020
0: with confidence, knowing that Plexiderm is going to give you smooth, younger-looking skin in just minutes. The best part is it goes on clear, so nobody will even know that you're using it. You can leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles way back in 2019 with Plexiderm.
1: Say goodbye to those bags and wrinkles and say hello to the new you. Go to triplexiderm.com and use our code Martini for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling one 800 685 1292 and mentioning the code Martini. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit Triplexiderm.com today and use the promo code Martini at checkout. That's Triplexiderm, T-R-Y-P-L-E-X-A-D-E-R-M.com. Code Martini. All right, Jim, let's move to our second good martini now. Always glad to have two of those. And it was almost a year ago, it was uh, mid January 2019, when the story about the Covington kids exploded in the national press uh, because the kids from Covington Catholic High School had been in town for the March for Life. They had a couple extra days before they went home, they stopped at the Lincoln Memorial. And that's when uh, Nathan Phillips uh, and Nick Sandman came uh, nose-to-nose, the initial videos, initial reports— made Sandman out to be the villain. Uh, subsequent videos showed it much differently, that Nathan Phillips uh, and his uh, and his drum uh, approached Sandman, and Sandman's smirk became uh, fodder for liberals saying he ought to be punched, including Reza Aslan saying he's never seen a more punchable face. And then there were plenty of different uh, articles in the Washington Post and uh, throughout uh, broadcast news as well about what a, just a terrible moment this was, and it was privilege, and it was... It was all because the kid was wearing a Make America Great hat. Uh, And if you hang around Washington, you go on the subway when these class trips are in town, a lot of kids have these things, some of them because they like Trump, some of them just because they want a souvenir. But anyway, the reason that this became a story is because the kid had a hat, and so then all these think pieces came about about how horrible and entitled and privileged Nick Sandman and people like him are. Well, Nick Sandman didn't take it lying down. He sued CNN. He sued The Washington Post. He sued NBC News. And as of yesterday... He's only suing two of them because he settled with CNN. Uh, we don't know the terms. The initial lawsuit was for $275 million, so I'm guessing it's for substantially less than that. But, Jim, even if it's a fraction, uh, the investment in the MAGA hat certainly paid off for Nick Sandman, although the, uh, the stress over the past year, I'm sure, has taken somewhat of a toll. Hopefully there's a lesson here for the media not to jump to ridiculous conclusions or even air a story that was entirely predicated because the kid was wearing a hat.
0: Yeah, I think one of the most interesting legal analyses that I saw pointed out that, uh, you know, because libel law is very tough in the United States, this was not CNN making this settlement because they were certain they were going to lose. They, they still had a decent chance of winning this. However, discovery would have been a word that rhymes with which uh, <laughs> it was going you know under discovery. The, the, you know, Covington lawyers would be able to say, I want to have all access to all of your emails regarding this story, all of your internal communications, memos, anything anybody wrote or said, or did anything in preparation for this story. I want to look at that. And, you know, it's a pretty safe bet. There was stuff in there that these uh, various CNN producers and and personnel over there would find very embarrassing. Uh, If this went down the way we think it did, they probably looked at it and said, aha, see those crazy MAGA kids. They're all a bunch of racists. Now we can, we can really slam them, et cetera, et cetera. I'm speculating, but it's, you know, it seemed like a safe bet that there was something in there that CNN, you know, found worth not letting, letting get released to the public. And as a result of it, Hey, you know what? Let's, let's get out the checkbook. Let's make this problem go away. Uh, let's hope this whole thing goes away. Except my suspicion is, is that most, uh, consumers, particularly the kind of people who listen to this podcast, look, we're, we're never going to look at CNN quite the same way again. And we're not gonna look at any mainstream media institutions. And it's not simply the Covington case. Although I think that was a really spectacular high profile example of this. Um, It was a a good example of how any particular incident has to be shoehorned to fit the narrative Um, that people it couldn't possibly be that somebody else was a uh, a, a, a 11 for somebody, you know, the the uh, the the black Muslim group that was uh, the chanting then saying the uh, terrible things to these kids. It had to be these you know white suburban kids who are the evil ones. And in fact, we see this again just a few weeks ago in the coverage of the anti-Semitic attacks in New York. If this was done by the kind of guys that <laughs> actor Jesse Smollett said attacked him in Chicago, you know, white rednecks in MAGA caps, well, then the whole media would be going on this 24-7 and we'd see this as nat- you know, a national crisis, right? The fact that this was being done by largely uh, vehemently anti-Semitic African-American assailants. Um, that all of a sudden the, the media was uncomfortable about this, that it all of a sudden became, in words of one person, it's, it's very complicated. No, 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 it's not. Anti-Semitism isn't that complicated. You know, real estate disputes do not justify, well, I've decided to hate Jews. So you just, you know, don't get around that. We see this pattern over and over again. The news really loves to tell you information that fits a narrative. If the news doesn't fit that narrative, you either, get, either gets ignored completely, it gets completely misreported, as in the case of the Covington kids, or you get, you know, best case scenario is you get kind of check the box journalism. There is an article. It runs on page A7. It's, it's there. They didn't completely ignore it, but they certainly didn't focus on it. There certainly was no drumbeat, and there certainly was no uh, emphasis on this to say, hey, this is something you, the news consumer, needs to know about because it illustrates something important about the state of our world
1: yeah no, that 's exactly right, and uh, how much uh, attention they pay to school shootings uh, sometimes depends on the demographics of the of the shooter or other factors uh, that don 't fit their narratives. It happens over and over and over again. And so, uh, as you know, the Three Martini Lunch is really your one-stop shop for all issues, cultural and, and media and uh, impacts on on our lives. But if you're in the mood for a two-stop journey on your, uh, on your podcast list, uh, you can head over to the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. This is new from Radio America. And if you want another podcast that talks about the issues that matter, uh, this is another one that you should definitely check out. It's a weekly podcast, and each week they're talking about uh, things from... from... From parenting to social media, political correctness is a big issue for them, and the uh, importance of marriage, men, and and family values. They definitely touch on politics, but often it's a dash of politics and a a lot of commentary uh, from two women who are smart, they're really funny, uh, and they're conservative moms. So find out more by going to ChicksOnTheRight.com or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. Again, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. All right, Jim, let's move to our crazy martini now. And for that, back to Iran, because MSNBC, for some strange reason, decided it was important to have a live coverage of the Qasem Soleimani funeral. Now, remember, it had to be postponed because there was a stampede and well, was at least a dozen people died, maybe dozens and hundreds more injured. But nonetheless, uh, it finally happened. And MSNBC, for some reason, thought it was worth covering live and how they covered it was quite nauseating. Cal Perry was actually in Iran, and obviously if you're in Iran, you're kind of under the thumb of the Iranian regime for what you say, so everything's got to be pretty bland or even fawning over the uh, Iranian regime. Here's what he said.
0: Yeah, you know, he's being buried as we speak, and it's happening actually next to his radio operator from the Iran-Iraq war, something he requested. And it gives you a little insight into the kind of hero uh, that this man was in Iran. Uh, A million people died in the war between Iran and Iraq in the 80s, and so the Quds Force and so General Soleimani. Uh, became the the way for the Iranian military to fight its enemies abroad and not in Iran. And, and that really was their ethos, the principle. That's why you see Hezbollah along the border uh, with Israel. And you saw that war in 2006, the idea of fight Israel uh, in Lebanon and not Iran. In 2003, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, Qasem Soleimani was engaged um, in killing U.S. soldiers, the idea there fight the U.S. Um, in Iraq and not Iran. It, it, it really speaks to why uh, he was such
1: a hero in Iraq. Such a hero, Jim. He's such the just the victim in all these things, and had to fight back against those dastardly Israelis and Americans. But Allison Morris was not in Iran. She was in studio, and uh, she was fawning too. Cal, it's amazing as we're just watching these images of all the people out there. Uh, uh, You can hear uh, what sound to me like prayers, uh, and and you could just see uh, the throngs of people, and their eyes are absolutely glued on what's happening. You just get the sense of how important this is to the people there. and and you can see uh, what it looks like. They are moving his body right now. It is just an absolutely uh, incredible thing to be witnessing. Oh, Jim, could you tolerate another second of that?
0: <laughs> no, um, <laughs> which is why I don't spend a lot of time watching MSNBC. Um, the, the one thing I would note, it, it is worth keeping in mind that <clears throat> the Washington Post had a columnist or a correspondent named Jason Rezian who was in jail, put in jail by the Iranians for several years on absolute BS trumped up charges, basically an attempt to use him as a bargaining chip. Um, You know, taking Americans hostage is kind of an old Iranian habit, Uh, doing it since 1979. And that's arguably what they're best at. So I can understand why American correspondents would be uh, take a certain tone in their coverage from live on the ground in Tehran wanting to stay in, on good terms with, their, uh, with the government officials who are undoubtedly minding them and monitoring them. You don't want the Iranian government cutting your signal. You don't want them arresting you. You don't want them uh, doing other things. So on the one hand, and there's always been this question for Western journalism agencies. If you have an unfree regime like this, like Saddam Hussein's Iraq, like North Korea is it worth it. And most of the time their attitude is yes, it is worth it. We want to get those pictures from live on the ground. We want to be able to quote the what the Iranian government is saying or what these, you know, hostile governments are saying. The news value is worth it even if it means we kind of have to play by the rules of the uh, of that, you know, this this authoritarian government there. This kind of ties very closely to another statement on MSNBC last night when they were reporting that the Iranian government was claiming was it 80 US troops had been killed or something? You know, like they can see that, <laughs> like like they're going to know that that quickly after a missile strike. It takes time to do uh damage assessments and things like that. MSNBC reported it. My sense on this is simple if, if an Iranian, if, if a authoritarian government uh may, says something, makes a claim like that, the fact that they're saying it is news and you should report that, but you also should point out right there, as you're saying it, that this is probably foreign disinformation, this is probably propaganda that if you yourself have not verified it, you, you know, don't use the word stated or said, use the word claimed, maybe asserted. Right. You know, um, the, you know, in the end, these were unproven claims that were basically designed to make the Iranians beat their chests and feel like they did such a they, you know, struck us harsh blow to the Americans and all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't I believe that we as news consumers in the West are better off knowing what these foreign governments are saying and what they're saying to their own people. But at the same time, there's nothing that says we have to play along with it. And I feel like both this and the idea of live coverage of uh, uh, of, of, you know, Soleimani's funeral. Greg, there are a lot of Americans who don't get live coverage of their funerals. Uh, somebody had noted the cover, the Soleimani uh, headlo- obituary headline in The New York Times comparing it to Sam Weish. The former Bengals and somewhere else coach Tampa uh, that he had once gotten in trouble for not allowing a woman reporter in the locker room that was right there in the headline. Yeah, as far as the New York Times was concerned, that was the single most important thing Sam Wyche had done in his life. He took the Bengals to a Super Bowl at one point. So you know, anyway, so just an example of like there is a an uncharacter you know the the, the austere religious scholar Al Baghdadi you know. There is this weird reverence that comes out in the mainstream media when it comes to these kinds of figures that ironically almost never gets extended to American religious figures.
1: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's just absolutely appalling. I just wonder, I mean, the pictures are helpful, I guess, but uh, when you have Lester Holt over there in Iran, it reminds me of Lester Holt in North Korea before the Olympics a couple of years ago, goes in there and basically spouts the party line or nods along while someone gives the party line. Uh, the pictures might be nice, but it doesn't uh, advance truth or real journalism as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, I mean, my suspicion, Greg, is this all goes back to Bernie Shaw and Peter Arnett in the uh, in that hotel room in Baghdad uh, in the Persian Gulf War. Uh, some people said that was the night that CNN was born. They were the only ones who had a live audio signal from uh, from Baghdad. I think they end up making a whole film about it. Uh, and if you want, to remember who the actor was. We played Ar- Arnett as a lunatic. It was kind of fun. Um, but the gist being. At that moment, everybody who was watching news coverage, you are probably clicking around to all the channels. But all of a sudden, it's like, wait, are you see? CNN's got this live. Are you watching this? And just think, you know, just think about the, the miracles of modern technology that you can know this is what it looks like. You know, what inside the capital of a foreign country that the United States is at war at. Right? Didn't have that in Vietnam. Didn't have that during World War Two. Um, just an unbelievable kind of instantaneous, you know, news coverage of, of the anti-aircraft guns and what they were seeing and what they were hearing and things like that. So on the one hand, this is really, you know, you can understand why journalists want to do this and they want to replicate that moment of like, you know, this is what is going on on the ground where the war is going on. Um, but for obvious reasons, you have to end up playing by the rules of the, uh, the, the local government. And very often they're not interested in letting the truth get out. They're only letting their version of the narrative get out.
1: Yeah. Well, overall a good day, though. Iran effectively stands down, at least for now. Uh, Nick Sandman just got really rich, courtesy of CNN's bogus reporting. And uh, MSNBC further exposed for whatever it is they're doing now. Jim, not a bad day. Indeed, Greg. All right. That's it for the uh, Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Don't forget to visit our friends over at Plexiderm, try Plexiderm.com, code martini. And tune in again Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.